Welcome to Minor Movement Conversations. I'm Hazel. Today I was super stoked to chat with Frank French from Exuberant Animal and the Sapiens Project. Frank is a super cool dude, super friendly, super lovely to chat with him. He's an internationally recognized leader in health and performance education. He has a BA from Stanford in human biology and neuroscience. He's the author of many books, including Beautiful Practice, which I we're going to chat about a bit today, and The Art is Long, as well as many others. He was named by Experience Life magazine as one of the five visionaries leading the charge to better health and a healthier world. Check him out at www.exuberantanimal.com or www.sapiens.earth to find out more about Frank and his cool projects. Um, so today we have a really wide-ranging conversation we start chatting about all kinds of things, but his 25 lessons to practice beautifully, how neoliberalism turns us all into healthy units and how we want to help help people, not just get them keep on coming back, and experiential design, which was really, really interesting. Frank is full of energy and is really passionate about getting us all fired up to heal ourselves and heal the planet. It was an absolute honor to talk with him, and I hope you enjoy. Why did you call the book A Beautiful Practice? What does that mean to you? And how does this mismatch hypothesis lead us to need a beautiful practice? Right. Well, I've, I've heard people talk about practice over and over again through my athletic career. And a lot of time in the martial arts, everybody talking about how's your practice going? You know, what are you doing for your practice? And of course, it's a real popular way to talk in the yoga world too. And so... I've been hearing this for a long time and at the same time studying human evolution and thinking, well, how do these two ideas fit together and what does my practice mean in the context of human history and now this challenge of trying to live in the modern world? And so you know, we've been handed down through the generations a lot of traditional practices but I think now the time has come to try and put those into the modern context and see what those practices can do for us. So that's why I wrote the book, trying to make sense out of it. Yeah. So all of the, the kind of 25 lessons, when I was going through them, I was like, man, you could spend a lifetime on this one idea alone. And they're, they're all like really good jumping off points for anybody to start any kind of practice. It's not specific to, you know, athletes or anything. And right. my favorite big idea from the whole book, and actually I just wanted to let you know that I read 21 lessons for the 21st century just before I read this book. So I started, uh, I started calling this book 25 lessons for the 21st century. And, you know, one of um, Yuval's, you, you know, I think you've read a bit of Yuval Noah Harari. I read somewhere that you had. And, you know, he talks about the most important thing for the future is to invest in emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. and mental balance because the hardest challenges will be psychological. And when I read that, I was kind of struck by the, that mind-body split within that kind of sentence. And that right. from my perspective, you know, your number one idea, which is begin with the body. Like if I want to help somebody out psychologically, you've got to start with your physiology. You know, yeah. you've got to optimize the microbiome. You've got to get all of those things cranking. And I was just like, no, I'm going to go with Frank on this one. I'm going to go begin with the body. So yeah, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges of trying to live in the modern world is that so much of our philosophy and our education is 
what you might call Cartesian, because we, we have this, this legacy of Rene Descartes that is still very much alive today in so many of our institutions. And that's the idea that the mind and body are two separate things and that the mind is superior to the body and that the body in that sense is really not that important. And so we have all these, um, these inclinations toward this mind-body split, and this is how we educate children, and it's, it really flies in the face of so much of what we know now about neurobiology and how that our cognition is actually embedded in the body. It's not just localized in the brain. It's distributed throughout the body. So you have to, you have to respect the body if you're going to educate yourself really in any way. So. Absolutely. And, and, and living in this society... I find myself being, you know, I'm a chilled person, but I get stressed, you know, and I find these feelings in my body, not elsewhere, they're in my body. And what I've become really interested in the last few years, especially, is just how I have a lot of, a way more control over that than I thought when I put my attention where I need to put my attention at any one point in time. And in that email you sent me, you said a couple of things that um, I was like, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. And one of them was that this idea of like stress. And the mm -hmm. other thing that you said is autonomic confusion. And is that, is that like Galhorn's idea of sympathetic tuning, where you've got the first, second, third degree tuning of the sympathetic nervous system? Or what did you mean by that? I'm not familiar with. When I talk about autonomic confusion is... This is a characteristic of our modern alien environment where so much stimuli comes at us at, basically at random, because especially with electronics now, we have stimuli that acts upon our autonomic nervous system that mm -hmm. is not tethered to any grounding. It, it, it doesn't relate to anything that's actually happening on the ground. So right. if, you, if you go into a grocery store and they're playing songs and music that is maybe romantic or maybe has some feeling tone that acts upon your nervous system, but that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you're shopping for food. So you get these constant mixed messages throughout the day. And it's very much like I compare it to watching a movie where the producer and the director just couldn't agree on what the movie was about. Right. So the movie starts out as maybe an action adventure, and then it goes into a romantic comedy, and then it's a documentary. And so all these points in the movie, your nervous system is stimulated in entirely different ways. Right. And that is completely unprecedented in human evolution. For the vast majority of our time on Earth, every stimuli that we experienced had something to do with an actual event on the ground. Right. And so we are tuning then was to habitat. And now it's right. just really hard to deal with all these mixed messages. And our nervous systems are stressed because of that. I really hear that. Cool. And then um, you, in your email, you said about stress, especially the stress character reveal. And that just had me intrigued as well. I was like, what is that all about? That sounds cool. Yeah. I, I love this subject because... Yeah. I've studied stress for a long time, and I've noticed the way people teach it, and everybody starts with the autonomic nervous system, and then the conventional recipes for how to alleviate your stress, and I also went to massage school, and mm -hmm. 
took a very, you might say, adversarial approach to stress where the objective was to make stress go away. Right. And you, you, whatever you could. Stress is the enemy. Stress is the adversary. Let's do all these techniques to try and make it go away. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that works. But I read a book called Story, and it's a, a screenwriter out of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And now this, is, this may sound like out of left field, but it's not. He, tell, he teaches screenwriters how to write movies. And in general, the formula is to escalate the stress in the movie so as to reveal the character of the protagonist. And wow. it doesn't matter whether it's an action-adventure movie or a romantic comedy or whatever it is, the protagonist, and, and you as a viewer, you want to know who this protagonist is. You want to know what their character is. So the author, the screenwriter, starts to gradually increase the stress throughout the scope of the movie. And by the end of the movie, you know what that person's character is. Right. Look at it from this point of view. You start to say, wow, stress is not an adversary. Stress is essential for me getting to know who I am. And in that sense, you, you really want that stress to help you understand help you understand who you are in the world and how you're going to behave. So it's, um, it's actually an essential asset mm-hmm. of living in the world. You want that stress so you can find out who you are. And for me, that's been kind of illuminating and, and liberating. Um, yeah. You don't want to I, make it, you want to learn from it. Absolutely love that idea. And I haven't heard of it. And I love that you got it from screenwriting. One of the things that, you really wanted to chat about today was also this medicalization of life itself. Tom Myers, one of my teachers said to me once that, so he talks about going into hospitals and seeing the medical records and everybody from 20, 30 years ago has died of natural causes. Now you go in, everybody's died of some kind of heart failure, renal failure, everybody's failing in their death and he wants to not go to hospital to die. So his, his death can be a complete success. What that means for us, when we've been turned into a, almost a commodity through neoliberalism, the whole idea of it turns us into a health unit. And yeah. if, if we're a sick health unit, then we've got to consume health products to become healthier. There's a guy called Andrew Dixon that I heard talking about that once, and it just like slapped me in the face. Yeah, yeah. I, it's a fascinating subject right now. And I uh, well, a little bit of background one guy who wrote about this extensively in the 1970s, I believe, was Ivan Illich. And he, right. he was a social critic, and he was the one that pointed out this medicalization of society and how it was tending to rob people of their innate healing powers. And that may, he turned out to be prophetic in that because it, this is making more and more sense now that people tend to seek out health professionals for really minor ailments now, things that normally we would have fought in our way through. So it's, it's really changing the human experience at a fundamental level. Mm-hmm. You know, I know people who, uh, affluent people who go to see a healthcare provider uh, several times a week, and even for really minor things. And you have to wonder if 
they're really better off because of that? And the answer is sometimes yes, but I think sometimes no. I mean, it, it develops this kind of dependency on the various uh, methods and modalities, mm -hmm. and whatever happened to your primal healing powers in the process? Medicalization, yeah, and the, the one thing I wanted to add to that is, is that it puts us as healthcare professionals in a really awkward position. And, you know, we want to build our businesses and we want to have a, a steady practice with lots of people coming in to see us. But when you think about medicalization, then you start to wonder, are we really helping people to the degree we'd, we'd like to? And one sort of answer to that, I heard a fellow once, and I can't remember whether he was a, a personal trainer or a massage therapist or what have you, but his, his take was, he said, my goal is to get rid of my clients. Yeah. In other words, he wanted to give them a basic education in whatever it, it was they needed, you know, some of the fundamentals to get them back on track and then get rid of them. Yeah. And I thought, okay, now this is somebody I can have a conversation with because their primary focus is on the welfare of the patient or the client uh, rather than the business of delivering care. So it's, uh, it's a thorny issue, but uh, we're going to have to face it at some point. Yeah, I love that you're talking about that. Tom, he recommends that you see a client no longer than 12 times and 12 times max. So if you haven't helped them in that time, then it's time for them to go out and work it out by themselves or to seek somebody else's help. In, in New Zealand, GPs are just overrun general practitioners because people are just going in to see them for all of these small things. If you're cold, they'll go in and want antibiotics, even though antibiotics aren't going to help with the um, situation. Yeah, and I really think that we have been conditioned into not understanding the power of our ability to heal ourselves. Right, right. Because if yeah. you think of, uh, go back to the paleo, where all there was was shamanism and maybe some herbs, you basically, if you had an injury or an illness, you had to fight your own way through it. And people became strong because of that. Yeah. That, that experience, it, you know, it either killed you or you come out the other side being stronger. So it's, uh, it's worth thinking about. Uh, absolutely. And on that note, what are your thoughts on chronic pain? Because it is such an epidemic worldwide currently. It costs, I think, America more than diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and something else combined. There's so much research happening and a lot of what they're finding is that when people catastrophize pain and create neural pathways, basically, that are setting up these negative painful neurotags and how perhaps that we've been led into that by the medical society because I read in a book recently called The Meaning of Pain by a really cool guy called Nick Potter that mm -hmm. when we've got a really good healthcare system, we expect to be pain-free and expect to be healthy. And when we're not, we feel really let down. And he talked about the, the percentage of people in various countries who have chronic pain conditions. And it was 30 to 40% in a lot of really Western, well-developed countries. And in places like the Czech Republic and South Africa, it was 11%. So where there's a poor healthcare system, the the rates of chronic pain are much less. Yes, and I think it's um, part of this gets back to our 
Western European mechanical view of the body where everything's all, all about biochemistry and cause and effect. And if you get the right substances into your body, that that will cure the pain. But it's obviously got a huge mental and spiritual component to it. And we, you know, when we treat the body as a medical object, we, we just bypass all of that. So it's, um, we have to treat it holistically in the sense that we have to talk about the meaning of the person's experience. And that pain has radically different meanings for different people. Mm. But, but it also gets back to the level of stress in the modern world. I mean, that increases the threshold and even minor aches and pains that we would normally weather without problems. If your stress level is high, those are going to become problems. So, you know, we, we got over as a, as a culture, as a people, we kind of got over our in, epidemics of infectious disease, but yeah. now stress is what is, uh, is making our lives miserable. That's really illuminating. Thanks for that. In my country, in New Zealand, everybody is still very much obsessed with the biomedical model of dealing with chronic pain. And when you talk about the biopsychosocial model, bring environment into that as well. A lot of doctors are just so unaware of it and a lot of clients are so un unaware of it. And when they hear psychological things, they think they're making up their pain, which is of course not true. It just starts to get, uh, you know, a wee bit uncomfortable for people. And I think that's why Western medicine hasn't been talking about it for very long because it's easy for a doctor to say, you know, your disc is bulged or whatever, but it's, it's maybe harder for a couple of Kiwi blokes, American blokes, to chat about the fact that their relationships are dissolving or something like that. So I think that might have a lot to do with it as well. Right. Well, you know, things uh, really changed for me. I read a series of studies that was reported in a, in a sports medicine journal. And one of these research teams got together and they, they took MRIs and x-rays of a lot of people that are asymptomatic, people who are not reporting any pain. Mm -hmm. And what they found was astonishing because they found a lot of herniated discs and rotator cuff tears and, and biomechanical abnormalities in these people, and yet they weren't reporting any pain. So that that kind of put the lie to all this uh, mechanical interpretation of our bodies. Because if two people can have identical um, herniated discs or identical rotator cuff tears, and one is feeling pain but the other isn't, what's the difference? And we, we have yet to really take this on. Yeah. It blows my mind, all of those studies and all of the placebo studies that they've done on yeah. knee surgery and whatnot. It's just, it's just yeah. incredible. Yeah. What does the pain mean? What do you associate it with? And is there a way you can forget about it? And is there a way you can imagine your life without that pain? It, I think it's, you could even get into the realm of story and imagination with this as well. And of course, counseling and therapy. Yeah. One, one guy actually said the other day that he needed to tell himself a different story about his pain. And I was like, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I had the great pleasure of talking to Dr. David Hanscom, who wrote a cool book called Back in Control, which is all about chronic pain. And mm -hmm. I said to him that lots of people come into my clinic and say, how do I fix this? And 
I've been taking a bit of a Katie Bowman route and going, no, it's, it's not how do we fix this, but it's what are you doing every day that creates this? And he was like, yeah, it's kind of it. But the question is, how can you have a more awesome life? And yeah. that, that yeah. really struck me. And, and when you said there about story and how can you tell yourself a different story and what does your life look like without that pain and start actually mapping that out, then there's, that becomes a beautiful practice for somebody, doesn't it? Right. And it also gets back to this idea, we're hearing more and more about the importance of having a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. Mm -hmm. And I haven't heard this addressed directly, but my guess is that people who have a strong sense of meaning and purpose have a lot less pain and are able to get over injuries a lot faster because they have this big idea that's out there about their meaning and purpose and that eclipses everything else. So it's, it's powerful to have that. And that, that should be part of medical diagnosis. Do you have a sense of meaning and purpose in your life? And if the answer is no, you're probably really susceptible to minor insults and injuries. Wow. Yeah, that is cool. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that is so right. Awesome. On stories, one of your, your lesson 21 is tell a new story. You say that stories are reps. That's so great. How can we tell better stories to ourselves? But you also started talking about mindful storytelling for other people. Like how are the stories we're telling influencing those people around us? And I was just intrigued by that idea. And how can I help my clients to be, to, you know, the stories that we're talking about, how can they be more beneficial to them? And how can I help them to have better conversations with themselves? So, right. Oh. Well, this, we could trace this back all the way to the paleo, because when you look at native people, indigenous people, and the way they tell story, is that story for them is not entertainment. Stories are guides for living. Stories help you interpret reality and the cosmos and to find your way across terrain and learn the land, that sort of thing. Stories, in that sense, are essentially important. But what has happened in the modern world is we, we took stories and turned them into entertainment. And we also took <clears throat> song and turned that into entertainment as well. And so all of these things become disconnected with, from the land and disconnected from people. And then they appear on our electronic devices. And so stories now are just something for fun or maybe a little bit of uh, amusement from time to time. But we have to re-establish the importance of story as a central organizing feature of human life. And I think when people start to realize that, they take a lot more care in the stories that they tell and the stories that they listen to. It's not trivial when you tell a story. It's no. very important to be a good, intelligent, conscious storyteller. Choose your stories wisely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that was one of the moments in the book where I was like, well, that's, that's a concept that I can see very clearly, but just haven't thought about before. And is not, you know, it's not a meme. It's not a way that we're going around. Uh, it's not a cultural story. You know, these cultural stories that we're, you know, currently telling ourselves about the body and about health, are not at all bound up in story. It's just bound up in the short body idea of what is chemically wrong with your body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's given me something to think about for a while there. 
<laughs> right. So when, when, I th- when you think of the book Beautiful Practice now, because you wrote it a few years ago, is, is there anything that kind of um, jumps out for you there? Is there one of, like, in those 25 lessons, is there a favorite for you, or do you just kind of think they're all really important? <laughs> well, I, I think there are, I always try and keep it holistic because yeah. I, I know that these things are all interconnected, and that I feel like is, um, is the way forward. We have to keep conscious of interconnectivity at, at the level of not just our bodies, but ecosystems and social systems. And that's where we have to stay connected to connection, you might say, mm-hmm. and, and keep reminding ourselves of how important that is. And so much of what's happening now with the biosphere and activism and all of that stuff is, I, I think, vital for health professionals to get involved with because the body just does not exist in isolation, and it can't. I mean, it's um, you can't live in space. You've got to have the land, and you've got to have tribe. And as healthcare professionals, I think we need to be fighting for that. It's, um, it's yeah. yeah, here in New Zealand, um, we're, we're called tangata whenua, which means literally people of the land, not, yeah. um, not you know, the land of the people, but the people belong to the <laughs> land. And, and it also means like tangata whenua means placenta. So we are people of the placenta, like the land is the placenta. Um, there is that very, you know, from the Māori tradition, this very culturally yeah. deep root in you are part of the land. Right. And um, it's just being that it, it's very much, I think, a more traditional kind of culture's belief. They've been, um, they've held on to that story, whereas in the Western world, we've kind of let it go. And it, it's, um, it's showing in all of our health. And also because, of course, when, when the British or the Western people come to a country, they're kind of, they disenfranchise the people from a, from their traditional beliefs and whatnot, which um, has a massive effect on their health as well. And, you know, you don't have to look very far at all to see a country with an indigenous people that's really struggling due to the, the way that they once thought about their body and now the society that they're forced to live in and how it just does not match with their beliefs about themselves and how they're connected to the land. Yeah, somehow we have to reestablish that... Um that bond with habitat and it's it's really hard for people who live in an urban setting to do and it takes a lot of effort to get outside and maybe to travel to to wide open spaces um to learn the land but for now we have to try we have to attempt to do that and um yeah the, the effort, speaking of beautiful practice, another way to put this is that the effort is sacred. It's not, it's not about succeeding. It's about making the effort. And that's why I tell people all the time, the effort is sacred. And you keep that and um, you're going to be moving in yeah, the right direction. Yeah, one of the, the ideas that kind of floated around in my head while reading the book was that this was just a beautiful call to action. Actually, like, this is a beautiful way for you to do something for yourself and not to get yourself a new qualification or not to kind of get a new you know certification or whatever but to actually engage in something because it has meaning for you um and that's really important for your health you know you've got many of your um many of their ideas link into that like find your meaning and do it for yourself and take ownership and focus your energy and all of those things um really interesting 
The other idea that I really loved was the improvised one. And you talked about how like things are just speeding up, like culturally things are changing very fast. And um, you used the word health opportunism, which I just like loved. It's like taking any moment that you can to kind of do something good for yourself. Right, because the uh, the practicalities just never seem to work out. You listen to to health experts, and they say, "Well, you you should really sleep eight to nine hours per night, and you should exercise, you know, one to two hours per day." And you, there's all these prescriptions out there, and if you stay more than twenty four hours, so unless you're a professional athlete whose schedule is completely managed you have to make choices and you have to look for opportunities. And especially if you're doing something like traveling to another country or your, your workplace gets chaotic or your kids, whatever it is, mm. you have to just look for gaps in the action and find ways to fit movement in, fit um, good food choices in and fit your social time in whenever those opportunities arise. And you, you can't lock it down on a spreadsheet. You have to be kind of an artist of your own life. Yeah, that's cool. I go through phases of very much wanting to track everything and write it all down. And then I kind of, then I leave it behind and I, I much prefer it when I leave it behind, but then I think I get a bit too chaotic. So as part of kind of bringing me back on track, I'll track for a wee bit. And yeah, I love playing with that idea. But Right. And then there is a place for discipline. There is a place for having form and doing the exact number of sets and reps. You know, if you're going to be a professional athlete, that's what you have to do. Or if you're working in a clinic with injury rehab and, you know, people need a certain particular um, – course of treatment yeah you got to be disciplined in that but for normal people living normal lives who just want to be healthy opportunism is a good way to go yeah i love that idea number nine or lesson number nine is return to your breath which i think is some of the best advice that anybody can give anyone it's almost cliche these days everybody's talking about it and I use this test when I have a client come in for the first time where I get them to put their hand on their belly, hand on their chest, close their mouth and take a big sniff in. And I'm just mm -hmm. looking to see if the breath is directed into the belly or if it's directed up into the chest. And I've had one person out of hundreds over the last kind of three or four years that I can remember who took that deep breath into their belly. And I was like, your Buddha, you can go home. <laughs> just so linked to stress and where does that come from? Where do we lose this natural ability to not breathe in a certain way, but just breathe as we would breathe if we weren't stressed? Yeah, I, I don't know the, the chain of causality there really, but mm. um, you know, it's really common and it's, it gets lost along the way somehow in, in schooling. It's never, I never, nobody ever talked to me about breathing until I got well out of school. So um, that's another place that it could be. And even in school are popular. I, I don't know how it is where you are, but in the States, physical education is mostly about sports yeah. and it's learned how to play sports at a high level and, these are all movement specialties that can be fun and sometimes valuable, but they don't really teach you much about your body along the way. So. No, it's absolutely the same here. And we have a, a body called ACC, which is accident compensation. And 
there's been a lot on the news recently about kids overtraining and how um, ACC is no longer um, supporting specialization of kids into sports really young. You know, kids, kids are not getting the huge variety of playful movements that they once got and they're just sitting down watching screens and then doing a whole lot of repetitive sports practices and are suffering because of it. So no, very much we've lost the idea of um, a physical education and have moved more into this is how you play sports. Right, um, right. Yeah. And that's, th- this is another place where we could benefit from studying human history and studying human evolution, having some awareness of the paleo, because this has been kind of swept under the rug by history books for a long time. And we can't do that anymore because human history, 99.9% of our time on earth has been living outdoors in wild natural environments. And you can't ignore that fact. So I think every, every discipline, every specialty needs to keep that in mind. It's like we are, we are natural animals and we're attempting to do something that is really unprecedented. So, um, you know, the study of biology is like really crucial. It's oh, not just absolutely. You know, bugs and frogs. No. <laughs> yeah. And I, I loved how you illuminated that idea in your um, one of your blog posts relatively recently when you were talking about conferences and just how unnatural they are and how, yeah, I was, just, yeah. I was laughing the whole way through going, oh my God, this is so true. People talking yeah. about how important moving is while you're sitting down. Um, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like and they're, they're so Cartesian and yeah. they're so uh, focused on data and um, putting it in the proper PhD format that they kind of miss the lesson that is right there. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. It's like we are doing the exact opposite of what we're talking about. I just I went to the Ancestral Health Symposium here in New Zealand a couple of year, years ago and caught up with some awesome people, Katie Bowman being one of them. She's one of my teachers. Pelagia Asimo, who I, I love her. She has her kind of radical, um, you know, you have to be a healthy deviant in this day and age to actually be healthy. Uh, Katie and I actually had a chat about how weird it is that we were all sitting down and there were chairs, you know, she and I and a few others were sitting on the ground and that it was bizarre that people of this mindset were still doing it doing the traditional kind of sitting on chairs and listening to people. Yeah, yeah. Those cultural habits um, have been built up for over the last couple hundred years, and um, they die hard. I mean, yeah. people, people are creatures of habit. And so to change that and to be countercultural in that respect takes a lot of work and a lot of persistence. And it's, it's tough duty, but, you know, we've got to do it. Yeah, that's part of carving a new path, eh? <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Okay, so what at, at the moment, like I'd love to hear a little bit about what's your kind of leading question or what are you trying to figure out or discover at the moment? What is firing your, you up these days, Frank? Apart from all of what we've just talked about. Right. Well, for me, it always gets back to experience because when I look at the body in the natural world, how does the body learn? It doesn't learn via cognition and symbols. It learns via experience. And so if we're going to make a difference in the world, what we have to do as, as healthcare professionals and health activists is we need to create certain kinds of experience for people. So we are 
um, you might call ourselves um, experiential designers. And this, I think, is, is totally the future, where instead of looking for outcomes, we say, okay, we're going to put people into certain circumstances that will help further their education of their body or whatever it is. And so we say, okay, we're going to get people in a certain environment, and they're going to stay here for a certain length of time or whatever it is, and work out the details. So that's the challenge. It's not so much the sets and the reps, it's setting the context for people where um, they can have an opportunity to flourish. And their bodies will flourish if we can create the proper experience for them. So that's what's turning me on right now. Yeah, that's awesome. And that would be experiences outdoors in nature that are, I know if I have this thought that a lot of people, they use the word vitamin N and they've almost commercialized nature yeah. that say, and it's like, get out in nature and do your forest bathing. And I'm like, no, that's kind of missing the point. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of trivializes it and it turns uh, vitamin N into just another consumer product and yeah. uh, something to be tracked and measured. And no, no, it's, it's far more important than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's far more important than that. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about um, comes to mind right now or if not, I shall let you get on with your day, Frank. Not really. Just that I would encourage people to, to be stepping up and to participate in more fully in life in general, but to participate in creating the, the new kind of culture that we need that will support our bodies and our biosphere because we can't wait around for other people to do it. Everybody's got to be involved. And that's the, the call that, that we need to heed right now is creating a new form of culture or a new old form of culture that works for us in the modern world. So that's awesome. for all of us. <laughs> yeah, totally awesome. And so simple, hey? But so hard, yeah. to, so hard to get between all the different biases that exist in different cultures and different meanings that exist and create a shared dialogue for that has meaning for for everybody and that's the challenge right now isn't it yeah yeah well one way i like to think of it there's, there's almost eight billion people on the planet now and you know we're all looking for formulas but uh i tell people look there's eight billion ways to be healthy and there's billion ways to be an activist and to make a difference and everybody is going to find their own path, but you got to start walking that path and create it. So, and if yeah. you want to start walking that path, I highly recommend the book, beautiful practice by Frank. He wrote it a few years ago, but it is an absolute gem of a book. I loved it. I'm going to read it um, numerous times. It's one of those books that's been on my desk and I've been picking up and having a bit of a look through and then putting it down and going for a walk without my iPod. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Frank. I really appreciate it. It's always so exciting to get to chat to somebody who I admire so much and is doing so much beautiful work in the world. And keep doing what you're doing. It's so appreciated from all around the world here in New Zealand. You've got your book, Beautiful Practice, is on the new list of books that's just gone into the um, Christchurch City Library here. So your world, words are resonating around the world. Please keep doing it. We really appreciate it. And I look forward to having a chat to you about one of your other books sometime soon. Okay. Well, let's be in touch and we'll make it so. Awesome. Have a great day, Frank. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care now. Bye. Bye. -bye.